Ja, Ron. try and do my Aussie. Yeah! <laughs> That's terrible, Aussie. Terrible. I don't know. T, do you have a... Can you do an Aussie? Do you have an Aussie? Uh... You know, I I don't know if I have a good impression, but his Live and Loud album, I mean, the songs are great, but the best part is him yelling in between songs. <laughs> yeah. I know. Totally. I, I mean, I would call it mostly unintelligible, but just the crowd goes nuts anyway because who cares what he even said um but yeah that's that's one of my favorite parts of uh of that record i feel like he could have done that thing that elvis did you know remember when elvis released a record of just him talking in between songs yes yeah and it like went gold you know (laughs) because it was elvis i feel like ozzy could have done that and probably had a few takers you know we, we we saw ozzy a few times um solo i saw him with sabbath a couple times and he did have this funny move where he would introduce songs the same way every time. And it was always, this is a song called the, you know, and, and I, the one I remember the most is, yeah. this is a song called no more tears, boom, boom, you know? And yeah. it's like, Ozzy, we, we know no more tears. Just start the baseline. You know, I like the one in live and loud when he goes, this is a song that kind of says it all. Road to nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of says it all, you know, like yeah. Ozzy just really leveling with the crowd, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, welcome to episode 20. How about wow. that, T? How about that? Yeah. Wow. Did you ever think we'd make it to 20? Uh, negative Ghost Rider on that. But I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did too. And uh, tonight we'll dive into an album that we both hold up probably more than others, I would say. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that some as we go. Certainly an artist that's very familiar, but an album by that artist that you know, certainly wasn't overlooked, you wouldn't say, but absolutely would not be considered part of in the canon of this particular artist. And I, I think tonight we'll probably ask the question, why? You know, how can this be... Again, not overlooked, wouldn't give it that classification, but when you have an artist that creates a ton of albums, you know, it's, it's sometimes easy for a really good one to just maybe not get the treatment that it deserves. And we'll get into that, but I also want to talk to you just a little bit about kind of the generational thing. You know, we made some references to our last episode about growing up in the nineties and how that influenced our view of the doors. But I want to, I want to actually turn it around a little bit. And, you know, would an artist like Ozzy Osbourne T, would Ozzy work in 2020 and beyond? And is Ozzy going to connect with future generations of music fans? Or is that just something that will only resonate with sort of the 70s, 80s, 90s listener and fan? What do you think? Is there a future for Ozzy in the rock world? Or has he kind of hit the point where it's just going to be a nostalgia thing for all of us? Well, musically, it's a very interesting question. I mean, it's incredible how many people, and it's probably, I forget how the generations go. It's probably the generation beneath us. So what would that be? Z? Generation annoying? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Now I sound like an old geese, but it's amazing how I would say that's probably, it's probably that generation right beneath us thinks of Ozzy Osbourne as a reality TV star. The impact of the Osbournes TV show was, I mean, was tremendous. Many people cited as kind of the true beginning of reality television. So um, would Ozzy work musically is interesting. He certainly worked as a personality. Now, often the show was produced to kind of make Ozzy look like kind of a buffoon and all that. And, um, and I don't think they had to work particularly hard. To do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Most of the time, well-deserved, but a lovable buffoon. Right. But musically, you know, I, I think there's always going to be a place for the rowdy fist pumper, you know, keeping rock and roll alive type artists. And, you know, more recently that's been, you know, Foo Fighters and Nickelback and a few other bands that, um, while there aren't many, have, you know, a very strong following. And it's because of that. People need that, you know, that release and that energy in both the studio and live setting of that style of music. So, you know, I think there's always a home for that. As far as, you know, Ozzy's style and approach. And I mean, sure, I think it would because he's just so unique. I mean, no one has ever sounded like Ozzy Osbourne. No one ever had before. and No one has since. I mean, you've never really, of all the singers, you know, we talked about Jim Morrison last episode. I mean, how many people have basically replicated Jim Morrison's vocal style, right? Even Kurt Cobain's or Eddie Vedder's or Robert Plant's or I mean, you know, everyone to some extent has been replicated, at least close enough. No one's really ever been able to sound like Ozzy, uh, unless you can think of somebody that I can't. So I think based on the uniqueness of, of him as a performer, also his ability to always surround himself with the right musicians. I mean, Ozzy Osbourne isn't just a person. You know, it's a, it's been an ongoing project and part of the magic of it and the longevity of it is his ability to always surround himself with good players. You know, it's, it's almost like a, uh, you know, there are some athletes that have won a lot of championships and it's not necessarily because they're the best players, but it's because they've surrounded themselves with talent and sort of brought the level of execution and production up across the board and Ozzy's almost that type of artist. So it's as much about, you know, kind of the dynamics he creates as it is about necessarily his abilities to execute great music, uh, either in the studio or live. And I think that would play today still. Well, you know, I too like to surround myself with great people, which is why I do this faithful podcast with you, T. That's why. Because I well, like to surround myself with great people. Well, in that case, you might want to find someone else. <laughs> find a new partner. Yeah, yeah. But Well, uh, I, we're going to put this to the test as I find out what's on your turntable and see if I truly am surrounding myself with the right people as we take this thing around and around. All right, see, let's see if you're great people or not. <laughs> you know, it's actually not a joke. Those that those that know Nubs know that um, he will gladly judge you based on uh, what's in on your turntable. Uh, yes. So, you know, the idea that he will say whether you're a good person or not based on what you're listening to right now is actually a fact. So pressure's on me. 
Which might explain why I only have two friends. <laughs> well, the first one, I got, I'm bringing the variety, of course, uh, like usual. The first one is uh, actually two of them are live albums. Uh, the first is by Two Live Crew. Uh, it's called Live in Concert. I mean, listen, Two Live Crew are amazing, uh, you know, and clearly pushed a lot of boundaries when it came to censorship and some of these things. I mean, they, they actually have quite an interesting story. Musically, you know, this booty rap, um, you know, genre in the 80s, I'm, I'm a huge fan of. And of course, you know, those guys, the humor and the tongue in cheekness, you know, it's not necessarily a comedy act, but it's one that you had to take on with a sense of humor or else you're going to miss it, you know? And, uh, and so this captures them live and it's just amazing. I mean, it's the way that amazing that they did a live album. Yeah. I mean, it's so great. So great that they did a live album for sure. And you know, the crowd response and interaction is so funny. I mean, it's just great. I, I don't know. I just think the whole, uncle luke two live crew story as a whole is just hilarious um so that's number one and then for something uh i guess somewhat different i've got the indigo girls uh live double disc uh, it's called 1200 curfews really really good versions uh, i mean i'm a big fan of the ladies there but um really good live versions both full band and with just the two of them from those gals and uh, a really nice live collection. They cover all the bases really, really nice. And, you know, some of your uh, Indigo Girls favorites are, are just represented really, really well in a live setting on that record. So great recording. And then the third, this is kind of interesting. So last, I think it was two episodes ago, I had a song by um, an artist called Bayo on my um, What's In Your Head. And I kind of was, it was a very crappy job of explaining who this is because after the episode, I was like, you know, I'm going to go look them up. I I really didn't have a good sort of, uh, you know, a good foundation in explaining who this band is. And it turns out that it's Chris Bayo, who is the bass player for Vampire Weekend. Um, It's like his little side project. And I, I had no idea. So there you go. My uh, my third choice for round and round this week is is by Vampire Weekend. It's the album Contra, which was their second album uh, that came out in 2010. And this is, you know, I love their debut, but you know, this is where the band really started to establish a very original sound. I don't like what they've put out of recent. Their album last year I thought was very disappointing and a little too experimental and hipster for the sake of being experimental and hipster and they you know they had a very very important band member part ways with with the group which i think you know had a negative impact but this second record contra is outstanding and now you know who the hell i was talking about uh in the last episode there so uh that's what's round and round for me how about you know i'm still bummed it wasn't scott bayo well we do have that record too it's got some gems What's that Scott Bayo track that we always play before we do a gig? Yeah, we've got one on our uh, intermission playlist, and it's called um, Midnight Confessions. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, just so you know, when we get to our What's in Your Head, my first one is Midnight Confessions by Scott Bayo. <laughs> Even though you had to ask for the title, you're just going to go with it anyway. I'm going with it. I'm going because <laughs> I adore that song. Yeah. Yeah. Our intermission playlist when we do our gigs is actually kind of amazing. We should yeah. 
We should at some point uh, offer up just a list of highlights. <laughs> Maybe we'll do an episode on our intermission playlist. It's probably why most people come to see us is not for our play. Yeah, for yeah. The, you know, precisely. Well, uh, Rush just recently put out a uh, one of those super deluxe edition box sets that you fork over two hundred dollars for for the Permanent <laughs> Waves album. It contains all sorts of extras and goodies and stuff like that, and it just happens to be. Easily in my top three Rush albums, Permanent Waves. I think that one's awesome. It's a nice Permanent Waves is like a nice transition from more stripped down Rush to 80s synth Rush. I feel like it's that conduit between the two eras. And I, yeah, I like it too. Yeah, it's a good description. I totally agree. Uh, the self titled album from Collective Soul, which was the first album they actually did like intending to do an album because. The debut hints allegations and things left us unsaid is actually a demo. So it's the first kind of proper like recorded album by Collective Soul and uh, re-released that one on vinyl. It sounds really good. The, I don't know if you remember T, but the original CD of it was, it wasn't mastered and mixed very well. It was kind of thin. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a cool second album. It, it's got uh, Where the River Flows and it's got The World I Know, which you know I think is one of the best songs of that decade and kind of Collective Soul, you know, getting towards its peak and then a new album by a not new band which is osric tentacles one of the great space rock bands from the uk of course led by the mastermind ed Wynn, and uh, a new album space for the earth which i'm thoroughly enjoying as i uh, do of all osric tentacles albums kind of cool prog spacey stuff lots of synthesizers edwin is just one of those cool old british hippies that has made a ton of albums and it's good to see a 2020 release from that beloved group and see that is what is round and round for me well it's time to get into osmosis so let's talk more about ozzy osborne and get into some of the nerdy deeds done dirt cheap about osmosis you want some dirty deeds yeah you want some dirty deeds osmosis was released on october 23rd 1995 it was recorded over a two-year span and recorded in, in a multitude of studios. In, in typical of Ozzy, you never quite know exactly who's doing what or where it's happening. But the album was recorded as, as far away as Paris, France, and then various places in New York City. It was produced by the great Michael Beinhorn, uh, you know, one of the quintessential producers of our time. Produced albums by Red Hot Chili Peppers, Hole. Violent Femmes, had some great work with Marilyn Manson that I know you're familiar with. He's a, a Grammy Award uh, nominated producer for a couple of things. Michael Beinhorn, I think, really tapped into you know, what works with Ozzy Osbourne. Very important to kind of see where this album fits in Ozzy's career. It's the follow-up to No More Tears, which was the true comeback album for Ozzy's career. Ozzy was in a pretty bad way, both professionally and personally in the late 1980s. He kind of reset things, partnered with a guy named Zach Wild, and recorded an album called No More Tears that really reshaped Ozzy's sound and maybe even just as importantly, his image into something that was, you know, really relatable for the early 90s audience. No More Tears was a huge success and Osmosis came on the heels of that. Some might see it as the, the sort of younger brother of No More Tears, but as we'll get into, it really isn't that because there were wholesale changes virtually to Ozzy's band 
for this particular album. Three singles, Perry Mason, See You on the Other Side, and I Just Want You were all released as singles. The personnel, as always with an Ozzy album, is fascinating to look at. Ozzy, of course, handling the vocals. The before-mentioned Zach Wilde on guitar, a, a very significant musical partner for Ozzy and a partnership that would last many years following Osmosis after a short little hiatus. And Zach Wilde is a super important songwriting partner. And you can just tell kind of a musical yin to Ozzy's yang and somebody that I, I think deserves a lot of credit for rejuvenating Ozzy's career. A guy on bass named Geezer Butler. Yes, the Geezer Butler, of course. And this is incredibly significant to Osmosis. Geezer Butler handled all the bass on Osmosis, and uh, it was the first time the two worked together on a full album since they were bandmates in Black Sabbath. So very, very cool that Geezer Butler is part of this album. And when you can hear the bass, which is that frequent, I think Ozzy went to the... Uh, and justice for all school of bass mixing. <laughs> but when you can hear the bass, it's, it's, you know, it's so neat that Geezer Butler was part of this project. And I think his performances were excellent. Dean Castronovo on drums. Of course, he later joined Journey. On keyboards, Rick Wakeman. T, where's Rick Wakeman from? I've heard of that guy. <laughs> Rick yes. Wakeman, of course, from Yes. 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 Of course, from yes. the band Yes. Wakeman's contributions to this album are key. To our sound. Yeah. Yeah. And Michael Beinhorn, uh, the producer, contributed some keyboards as well. Michael Beinhorn. Yes. 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 For three. Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. In fact, we've, um, this is the second time on the old podcast here that we've name checked Michael Beinhorn. It actually, if you go back to episode one, where we talked about in utero. Uh, it's a little bit of a, you know, Kevin Bacon thing here, but we were talking about the studio in Minneapolis where they recorded in utero, which was the same studio where Grave Dancers Union was recorded by Soul Asylum and Michael Beinhorn produced Grave Dancers Union. And we made that connection. So uh, a little more relevant uh, mention, I think, to this episode, but we have name checked Beinhorn before. To your point, quickly on the Zach Wild thing, you know, coming off of the first guitarist who really shaped Ozzy's early career, that being Randy Rhodes, Zach Wild had tremendous shoes to fill and a tough job to sort of slide into. I mean, Ozzy Osbourne's guitarists have typically been, you know, almost co-leaders of the band in a lot of ways. And that was no exception with Randy Rhodes, but you know, the importance of Tony Iommi and Black Sabbath, certainly the importance of uh, Zach Wilde in his later career. But, you know, he's a really important piece of all of this. And also you mentioned No More Tears. Ozzy, I believe, was planning to retire from music after No More Tears. So to your point, he kind of had, you know, had a little bit of a lull there in the late 80s, came out with No More Tears, which was huge. And then kind of said he was going to hang it up. Well, he decided a, a couple of years later that apparently it was a bad idea. And that's when the Osmosis Project here started. Ozzy's not a songwriter. He's a collaborator. You know, he works with songwriters and we'll go through some of those as we go tonight. What Ozzy is, is number one, he's a vocalist. 
And he's got a tremendous voice. And to your point earlier, it's a voice like no other. And he's used that. He's also a visionary. It's very clear that Ozzy, while not a musician himself who can play a variety of instruments, knows what he wants, has a sound in his head that he wants to get to, and works with the right people to get there. And, and that's when I say earlier, you know, could an Ozzy happen in 2020? You know, I don't think so. I mean, this guy really made it on voice and vision. And he had a rocky career. You know, this was not an easy road that even got him to 1995, let alone 2020. But he always made it through by having a strong vision for where he wanted to get musically and being able to find the people that could get him there. And Osmosis is a, a tremendous example of that. And we'll get into that as we dive in. For now, let's dive into our respective wonder stories. T, we could find out your Ozzy story. Let's do the wonder stories. See, how'd you get into the Oz Well, I, you know, I don't remember like the first. I do remember, and you helped with this, getting me pretty into the live and loud double disc, which is a great way to engage yourself with a lot of his older solo work, certainly his no more tears work since that was on that tour. Uh, and then some black Sabbath stuff, you know, which he did versions of and continually played a few of those songs as his solo career went on. That was kind of probably the first time I actually dug into uh, Ozzy's work was through that live album. And then, of course, the Oz Fest in 1997 is incredibly memorable to me because not only was it the first time ever seeing Ozzy, who, of course, closed the night. And Ozzy shows are just amazing. I mean, in his heyday, he's he performed like no other. I just love an Ozzy show. Uh, but it was also our first time seeing Typo Negative. Or at least it was mine. I think it was yours, too, because that was on October Rust. So very memorable in that regard. With Osmosis in particular, I, I mean, I got to say that a memorable sort of moment with this album was, you know, we, we had this friend, I, I, won't, I won't dare provide her name, uh, who had like the hottest mom in like the universe. Um, and, you know, we loved, uh, I mean, she was a great friend of ours, but obviously we loved going over to her house in hopes that, uh, you know, maybe the, uh, her mom would be, uh, getting home from working out or whatever it may be. I mean, this was just, uh, you know, now the, the whole, uh, you know, American pie helped, uh, introduce everybody to the word MILF, you know, and this was kind of us, uh, you know, at age, you know, 15, getting our first experience with this in, in real life. And so I was already like medium kind of in love with this, uh, friend of mine's mom, but then we were over there at one point and, uh, she was like, the mom was like, you want me to throw on some music? You guys cool with that? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, we were all hanging out. All of a sudden I heard the uh, intro to Perry Mason. And I was like, oh my God, no, I'm really in love. You know, this uh, friend of ours, mom is not only rather attractive, but she clearly has great taste for music. And, uh, and that was actually the first time I heard Osmosis. <laughs> so I'll always remember that being the scenario of hearing this record for the first time. So some, some rather scattered recollections of Ozzy, but uh, 
but recollections nonetheless. So, uh, and the first time we've ever referenced a MILF during the run That's stories. correct. Yeah. <laughs> you knew it would happen at some point. You knew it would. <laughs> Love that, T. Um, I had Ozzy all wrong for most of my upbringing. You know, um, like I mentioned earlier, late 80s, very early 90s, Ozzy was not really a figure. Uh, he wasn't on MTV. This was post Crazy Train pre no more tears. And Ozzy at this point was, I hate to say dinosaur, but like he wasn't really that relevant. And, and by the early nineties, you're really starting to think about Nirvana Pearl Jam and grunge and things like that. I had Ozzy all wrong. I, I thought that Ozzy was death metal, you know, because I, I, all I knew was the image. I'd never really gotten into the music at some point early on. I heard crazy train and I was like, Oh, that's, that's not death metal. That's actually kind of a cool melodic song with a really good sound and mm-hmm. this cool guitar riff. And so I, I remember early on, it was like, okay, th- this is different than I thought. And then when No More Tears, the album came out, I mean, remember the lead singles on that album included Time After Time, Road to Nowhere, No More Tears. I mean, these were not like, you know, grinding rockers. These were like more sensitive I mean, my mom coming home, you know, these are almost like tender songs, melodic uh, pieces of, of rock music. And it just reshaped the whole thing. It was like, okay, this guy's actually really good. And even black Sabbath, you know, I didn't get into Sabbath. I thought they were scary. I think you listen to black Sabbath musically and you're like, nothing about this is scary. They're just a strong rock band that did a lot of different things on the albums they did with Ozzy. And so that just led to osmosis. By the time it came out, you know, we were 15 years old. I was already head over heels in love with all forms of rock music and, you know, kind of bought this right around that time. And, and it became a really, you know, important album just for figuring out, gosh, this guy is really good, you know, and, and Ozzy surrounds himself with amazing people and, and works with, you know, pretty incredible songwriters. So while I didn't have the experience of hearing it, you know, at a hot mom's house and, sort of falling in love with it that way. <laughs> I thought you were there. You weren't there? No, I don't think I was. I, I think I would have, would have remembered that, but let's talk about it and dive into the track by track as we drop the needle on the record. I'm just thoroughly impressed that you were able to uh, undistract yourself for long enough from the uh, hot mom that you were with to hear the opening notes and the rather grand introduction to Osmosis with Perry Mason. Must have been a no-brainer. That this would be the opening track. You know, it starts with that big orchestration, that big Michael Beinhorn sort of deal. Ozzy delivers, in my opinion, one of the best vocals I think he's ever delivered. I mean, his voice is just so, you know, burly on Perry Mason in every spot. It's a, it's kind of a, you know, trademark opening track. I, I don't know where else on the album this even could have gone. What do you think of Perry Mason? Oh, sweet intro. I mean, it's uh it really signals what you're about to get into here. Just a thick sound comparable to no more tears, but even bulkier. You're right. Very theatrical. 
uh, intro, very Ozzy, you know, with this sort of doomy, you know, kind of synth progression. And then, you know, the guitar bends that come in from uh, Zach Wilde are pretty iconic. You know, I think it's one of those riffs that uh, is very memorable and then takes you right into that, you know, choppy guitar, which underlies the verse section. So, yeah, I mean, this is a jam. When I heard the album for the first time, it was probably one of the few things that could keep me from, uh, you know, checking out uh, my friend's mom. Um, <laughs> but I did, uh, I did turn my attention temporarily, at least, to what I was hearing, and it was like, "Whoa, this is this is really good. This is a this is a very girthy sound. Great way to start this off." If an album opener has the job of getting your attention, Perry Mason certainly does that. All right, T. Well, you get past Perry Mason, and then you hit. What I would say is one of the more unconventional singles that I've ever heard, certainly in the hard rock category. With track two, I just want you. This is the first song I heard on the album, and I remember uh, being pretty underwhelmed. But I Just Want You has, it has been one of those slow movers that has grown on me over time. And at this point, it's one of my favorite songs in the album. I think a lot of it has to do with the last minute. That outro is so massive. And Ozzy, when he like does that scream bloody murder thing at the end, you know, I just want you. I mean, it's like he's just belting it out. And I think it's a really powerful ending. Yeah, the songs on Osmosis have a little bit of the... When we talked about the Slipknot episode on the old podcast here, uh, the, the Slipknot Dave Matthews band kind of thing where there's going to be a section that you're going to like because it's got really good pre-choruses. And we talked about the importance of those on the Winger episode, which are always kind of a nice dynamic of, of some of these you know metal songs that take you into a little bit more catchy territory but it seems that way on this and i just want to use a good example of them and you've got nice verses with again i love when you know ozzy kind of brings this keyboard effect you know it's always a nice synth sound and it's always something that's kind of dreary but kind of poppy but to your point you know the the outro to this song's you know great so you know you get the feeling as we kind of continue through this one that each song is going to have a section that you're going to like and i think that's always something that defines not only a really great album, but one that had very thoughtful composition and certainly a lot of talent behind that. By the end of I Just Want You, you are feeling the full presence of Rick Wakeman on this album. Between the keyboard work on Perry Mason and the whole intro, you know, the keyboard stuff on I Just Want You during the verses, you know, Rick Wakeman, normally known for kind of being like a prog rocker guy, his style it just translates perfectly into Ozzy's kind of dark sound. And I, I think Wakeman's a huge part of osmosis. He is. And, you know, we kind of, we kind of brushed on him earlier, but for those that aren't, you know, prog nerds, like, like some co-hosts on this podcast, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> you know, Rick Wakeman is the most prestigious keyboard player, you know, in the history of that genre. Right. And the work he did with Yes is legendary. And, you know, for him to kind of lend a hand here with Ozzy in the studio, I think really showed 
and I don't know how much Beinhorn had to do with it or Ozzy had, you know, I'm not sure who the ultimate decision maker is as far as personnel goes on, on any of Ozzy's operations, but it was a great decision for osmosis because it showed the importance that they were placing on that keyboard layering and on those synthesizer and different, you know, elements of layering. And it certainly comes through and it certainly, when you got Rick Wakeman at the helm, it's going to come through nicely. I got a little story for you about track three and we'll get to that. Track three to you are the ghost behind my eyes. of an opposite trajectory from I Just Want You. This, when I was a teenager, was far and away my favorite song on the album. See, what we've talked a lot about kind of like lost arts in 2020, things that we may never see again. One of the things that's gone forever is the mixtape. Mm. You and I were masters of the mixtape. Oh, closed a lot of deals with the mixtape. No question. Absolutely. And this album has two mixtape moments one for you one for me we'll get to yours later like you know much later like in the last track in the album for me ghost behind my eyes was like one of my favorite songs around this time you know i just loved it it was certainly my favorite song on the album i still really love it but it's dwindled a little bit just because i've gotten to know the rest of the album more and appreciated some other elements of the album more but i i had a girlfriend my junior year and poor girl yeah 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 absolutely yeah no doubt <laughs> And I made what I thought was just the, the mother of all mixtapes, right? Just the masterpiece. And on track three of that mixtape, I put Ghost Behind My Eyes, right? And I was so proud of this particular side in this tape. I thought it was just glorious. <laughs> and uh, she really liked the tape. And, you know, nothing better than to go through track by track after some listens and figure out, hey, what did you think of each song? And we got to Ghost Behind My Eyes and she hated it. Well, that's a deal breaker in my book. We broke up about two weeks later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't blame you. I mean, um, listen, um, as evidence from the hottest mom on the block when we were growing up, you know, it's cool when chicks dig Ozzy. It is cool. Yeah, I agree with that. It's kind of like you and I sort of have our thing for female Red Wings fans. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. like they're yeah, good call. Like, uh, like they're just kind of hot because they like like hockey and they like put on the jerseys and they're just yes. hot. Yeah. Know, they're, just, they're just hot and cool. And, and, uh, go to Joe Lewis and buy a $9 Molson. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's a little bit of the same concept there. <laughs> that's a good, that's actually a great comparison. I like that. So what, so T, what do you think of ghost behind my eyes? Enough for my, uh, high school reminiscing. What are your thoughts on this track? You know, I think it's a nice modern, very lush, more classic sounding Ozzy ballad. You know, a lot of these ballads of Ozzy's, you know, even going back to Black Sabbath, where they had a couple, you know, kind of softer songs, not very many. Sure. Changes. Couple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Often had these sort of walking, you know, progressions to them. And this is that classic, you know, C, B, A minor deal. At least I think it is. That's what my ear is telling me, which is, you know, a, a pretty common classic progression and one that 
whenever Ozzy, even in, in his younger days or in his older days, there, there were always great slower songs on the album that sometimes were hits and beloved and sometimes were more album tracks. But this to me is one that could have appeared on diary of a madman or on, you know, blizzard of Oz, or, I mean, this is one that I I feel like he could have written in the late seventies or early eighties and performed. Now it wouldn't sound as good or as lush as ghosts behind my eyes, but I think it's a little bit of a throwback. You know, it's a pretty simple tune, but one that they, um, provide a lot of layering and a lot of feeling to make it, you know, that much better. There is nothing ballady, if that's even a word, about track four. Let's get boom in here. Thunder Underground. See, is there any more like metal riff than Jun 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 I mean, it's like perfection. Super metal. And I love that. Here we go now. Yeah, just, yeah. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, nice, you know, kind of slower tempo number here. Uh one that, you know, is intentionally draggy. Um, but uh nice jam. Lots of good ring out there on those choruses. One of two song credits to Geezer Butler, uh, written by Geezer, Ozzy, and Zach Wilde. So you get a little bit of that Black Sabbath vibe going on here, but um, it's pretty, it's just pretty crunchy stuff here. Very simple, but I love the ending. Once again, you know, like you said, every song has a certain part. There's a section at the end where Geezer's bass line changes to the melody that uh, is in the middle section, and then they outro with that riff again, that do, 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 do. And it's just a really cool way to end. I think the undisputed fan favorite on this particular album is track five. And that is what was probably the biggest radio hit of the album. And another one with an interesting co-writer. And that is see you on the other side. Do you ever think that Lemmy from Motorhead could write such a kind of gorgeous melody? <laughs> I mean, I got to admit, I, you know, I've loved this album for a long time, but hadn't really researched it much until preparing for this episode. And I didn't know that Lemmy contributed. It's very cool, obviously. But yeah, Lemmy's showing a little bit of his softer side. And to your point earlier, Ozzy was never afraid to get some, uh, songwriting help not just from his own band but from the outside and the fact that lemmy who we lost not too long ago here uh it's been about a year two years yeah i think a couple years i don't know everything seems like it's uh yeah yeah (laughs) during the the pandemic has changed our whole thinking about time (laughs) it has everything seems like it happened within the last year when but yeah, I think it's a song that really deserves the the commercial success that it got. Um, it's very thoughtful. It's pretty, you know. I mean, that guitar parts, you know, through the verses, that that picking part is really kind of beautiful, you know. And 
with a nice vocal over it. You know, Ozzy was always good at being aggressive, yet um, genuine, yet also um, at times with his singing, sort of nurturing about it, you know, sort of, uh, he knew how to treat a slower ballad. You know, he knew how to treat a song that had some emotion to it musically. And, uh, and I think he really hits that on the mark here. That is one fascinating thing about Ozzy is, you know, his dynamic range is like the size of a thimble. He didn't exactly ever sing quiet and rarely did he like scream. You know what I mean? He would just do it for effect here and there. And his range melodically is incredibly limited. He really doesn't go that far outside of his basic normal range. But to your point, and you're right, he still finds a way to have different kind of voices and different approaches within that, you know, and it's not because he has range. It's I think because he has such a feel for the songs. I mean, he really does. He's such a human singer, you know, he's not Mm -hmm. technically gifted or anything like that, but Mm -hmm. he's got a great human feel with the way he applies his very unique voice to different types of songs. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. And he does it live too. You know, his his voice is not just a studio creation. I mean, obviously they, they know in the studio how to make his voice sound extra cool, but you know, live same dynamic. He's up up there able to be heartfelt and able to be powerful and able to be aggressive and always sounded really good. Even in the days where you weren't sure if he, you know, knew his own name up there at times, he's almost, I mean, Ozzy's a little bit of a freak in the way that there were times where you wondered if he could like, you know, walk across the street. Um, (laughs) But he gets up on stage and, like he's back right back there in 1982 again, as far as his energy goes and, and his vocals go. You know, it's always one of those things that's very fascinating about him. So See You on the Other Side certainly explores very successfully this kind of loud, quiet, loud thing that we've referenced. But Loud, Quiet, Loud goes to a whole new level with track six, Tomorrow. mentioned during our last episode that uh, pretty much every time one of us respectively hosts an episode, you look forward to the other's take on certain songs. I'm very much looking forward to your take on tomorrow. What do you think of this one? It's pretty good. I mean, you'd typically think that six and a half minutes is a pretty long song, but on osmosis, it's actually pretty standard, you know? And I think the composition of this album was one that certainly aired on the side of Let's get in all the different sections, all the different parts, and all the different elements that we want, rather than trying to keep them, you know, within four minutes or whatever it might be. You know, I mean, I think just kind of glancing at the track listing here, I mean, I think the song average is probably over, certainly over five minutes. So, and I think tomorrow is a good example of throwing it all in there, you know, and it's a very, it's a pretty indulgent album, right? I mean, here you've got, Zach doing his pinch harmonics and, you know, almost like mini little solos, you know, throughout much of the song. So you've got a lot of guitar variation and layering, you know, you've got one that isn't exactly verse course verse structure. So it's a little bit more drawn out, but, but I think it's creative. You know, I think it's, it does have some nice quiet, loud elements to your point. It's a good one for the middle of the album here. I believe this kicks off side two, if I'm not mistaken. 
And, and, you know, I think it, it kicks it off nicely with one where they were trying to do a lot of different things, but I think it all works together pretty well. Yeah. Tomorrow's one of those late bloomers for me. I, I didn't pay much attention to it when I was younger, but at this point now it's easily one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, I think the, the dynamics are really stunning. It starts with that really quiet guitar and then it just builds and builds and builds. And I think the chorus is really strong. And uh, the, the loud verse sections, I think, are just gigantic yeah. when they all kick in. And so I, I think this song really masters dynamics. And uh, once again, you know, just kind of anthemic stuff. When we talk earlier about, you know, is there still a, is there an Ozzy for 2020 or still room for Ozzy, you know, with festival rock and, and everything needing to be danceable and kind of all this modern sounds, you know, where's the room for just kind of a pump your fist anthemic song that yes is six and a half minutes and that's okay you know like yeah. everyone's attention spans now are you know two and a half minutes and everything's got to be in and out and sound good on a phone well osmosis as an album is a real headphones album you know it's something you really do want to listen to and pick out different parts and you kind of nailed it when we were talking right before we started it's loud too i mean this is a very loud this is like a loudness wars mid-90s album tomorrow really takes advantage of that i, I think tomorrow is one of those turn it up really loud in your car and listen to it on CD and you'll, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. And, and no song ever feels too long on this record. Sometimes if you've got a record where the songs are in the five and six handle, you know, you could probably take a step back and say that there are a couple that probably could be trimmed up a little bit. I don't think so on this. I don't think so on this. I can't think of one, including tomorrow where it needs to have any time shaved off of it. And I think a lot of that does have to do with, being smart and thoughtful about section placement within the song and having, you know, appealing sections within the song. Track seven is probably the only one that's too long just because it, you know, is five minutes too long. In my opinion, the duffer room <laughs> denial. Man, it, this would have been such a great nine-track album, you know? I mean, it's it's okay. I, I'm definitely, I get, I get it. I get what you're saying. It's, you know, th there's some cool groove to it. There's some cool, you know, that guitar breakdown we just heard is kind of neat. It doesn't really go anywhere, you know, um, like some of the others do, but I think you can listen to denial and at least find a part that you like. Not when the strongest you, point. I would agree. When you find that part, let me know. Cause I'm still searching for it, <laughs> but it does set up the entrance of a rather famous guitarist into both the songwriting and musical contribution here. And that would be what appears to be a little touching tribute to Ozzy's son. And that is my little man. Rock history is full of odes to uh, kids, 
father to son type of songs. It's always interesting to hear these guys get really sensitive about their kids. And uh, with Ozzy, I think it works, you know, and you and I are not big lyric guys, but I, I just, I, I find it charming and a bit touching that he would write something that's dedicated, but, but musically, you know, Steve Vai, who is the co-writer of this song. And I'm guessing the dude who had the idea to do the old sitar thing. I think they created something, you know, just gorgeous. And particularly with that middle section. Hey, Nubs, quit being cool guy, okay? This is so cute. <laughs> it's so cute that he would write this song for his boy. Now, I always thought this song was really cool and all that. And some of the, you know, you're right. There, there, are, there are a few songs like this where you listen to them in your younger days and you're like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, cool. And then you have a son, you know, which I did uh, eight years ago now and counting. And, uh, and then you hear this song and you just cry. Did you cry when you, you listened know? to it? It's like, it's like, <laughs> oh man, this is so cool. You wrote this first boy, you know, it's very, when you actually do read the lyrics, I mean, it is rather adorable, you know? And I, I, I think though that Ozzy didn't write them. Uh, I think Lemmy wrote them, if I'm not mistaken. So, you well, know, it's, it's um, controversial on that because Lemmy does not have a songwriting credit in the liner notes. And, and there was no Lemmy songwriter credit there. But in retrospect, and I know like on the Wikipedia page, for example, Lemmy does have a songwriting credit. So it's hard to say, you know, uh, but, but we do know without question, and you can just hear it, that Steve Vai, his influence on the song is strong. So I never trust Wikipedia, uh, nor should anyone else fully, even though it's a great resource. I looked this up actually in Guitar World, and there was an article um, actually fairly recently discussing how Steve Vai, Zach Wilde, Geezer, Ozzy, and Lemmy, how unique it was that that all-star crew all collaborated to some extent on a single song. And it happens to be My Little Man. There's a whole article about it. And Steve Vai said that Lemmy wrote these lyrics specifically. Oh, okay. And, you know, what he says exactly is, you know, if you listen to this, you can glean an insight into the deep softness that was comfortably resting under the external persona. He said that, you know, shortly after Lemmy died. And then he said, the song is deeply touching. And when I met his son, Paul, I realized how sincere those lyrics are. Oh, you know, so it's father it's, to son, but it's Lemmy to son, not Ozzy to son. Exactly. So, oh. but still cute, still so <laughs> cute, maybe even cuter that it's Lemmy, you know, but you know, Hey, who doesn't love a big, big guy, big gruffy, scruffy rock and roll guy that also has a big heart. That's right. I, I think what the, the song is, is pretty powerful, but that whole middle section, the, um, and when you're dreaming, you could talk to angels. And if there's demons, you know, that kind of section is, it's got this rise to it. And then it builds into that. You save me, you know, you gave me the greatest gift of all. It's, it's just very climactic and it, it captures everything good about Ozzy when he kind of goes sensitive Ozzy, which we've already referenced a couple of times today. But um, I, I think that uh, I think my little man has a really special song. It really is, you know, the, I think musically, it certainly does the job, the sitar um, effect, you know, which I think Steve Vai is playing 
it is just a great layer, very unique layer at the time. I mean, obviously mixing sitar and rock and roll, we all know where that started, you know, with a guy named George, uh, who was, you know, in a band that came from Liverpool. George H. Yeah. We'll just protect his anonymity there, but to incorporate that into this song again, very thoughtful. And I think Beinhorn, you know, you can tell that he's got his fingerprints on some of these things. You know, I'm not sure that Ozzy thought of a lot of this layering himself. I'm not even sure that Zach or some of the others involved did. You probably on a song like this, even though you've got some pretty, you know, muscular guest personnel, you probably got to give a little bit of a nod to Beinhorn who probably brought some creative ideas to it. Yeah, that's a great call. The, the layers here have Beinhorn written all over them. Clever title for track nine, My Jekyll Doesn't Hide. Kind of weird because uh, all my Jekyll does is hide. <laughs> yeah. uh, Geezer Butler making his second songwriting contribution here. You think Geezer wrote the do 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 do? I mean, that is like so Geezer Butler. It it sure does sound like it, doesn't it? I wouldn't be surprised. I think this song's a jam near the end. It's a nice in between when you look at My Little Man and what comes next. It's got a nice you know opening to it. It kind of continues to elevate. And once again, kind of a cool middle section where the song kind of transforms into something totally different. But uh, I think Maestro on the clip there did a nice job of choosing the key part, which is that little pre-chorus or chorus. It's hard to tell sometimes, but that riff that I hummed a minute ago, I think is, is kind of the key to the song. Yeah, very, very talented engineer we have on, on the old podcast here. Yeah, certainly. yeah. he does a great um, job with the clips. He really does. Um, so Keezer Butler, two for two here. Obviously, he contributes to Thunder Underground, and then he contributes to My Jekyll Doesn't Hide. And I think both are really nice fits for this record that bring an edge to it. That's, that's kind of the power. And to your point, it, it is that kind of Sabbath effect of, I mean, I think one of the, if you're talking about Black Sabbath, one of the five descriptors you probably use is power. And, uh, and certainly, you know, both of the tracks that Geezer contributes toward here, I think are probably two of the most powerful and the most driving, which is nice. This track to me is just, it's very slick, you know, it just moves along well, you know, it's not very, um, gimmicky, but it's kind of nice and swirling for something that kind of rocks as hard as it does. So nice chop, nice sections. And I think it's a really nice second to last track here. T, are you excited to talk about track 10? What's, I've, I've never heard this song before. <laughs> Earlier we mentioned mixtapes, and I could tell you for sure this ended up on at least one TOEF mixtape, but I, I think it ended up on multiple. Are you implying that I may have had repeat appearances of certain songs on certain mixtapes for a lady? I'm not implying I would bet my house on it. Well, kind of a dick move, but I probably did it. <laughs> Close it up shop. Old L.A. tonight.
if I'll just let you go because well, this is a top ten song for you, top top twenty, I would say, right? I mean, it's it's in that it's in that universe for you, isn't it? It's got to be. It's got to be. I just adore this one. Uh, have for years. Um, it's a great closer to a good record, clearly. But yeah, I think it's Ozzy's best. I mean, it's my favorite song by Ozzy Osbourne ever. It's certainly. Um, yeah, I think in the all time realm, it certainly makes the top 25 of all time. It's certainly going to make an appearance there. I could listen to it probably every day and never get sick of it. You know, there are just certain songs that you just kind of truly adore and old LA tonight's one of them. I just think it's beautiful. The um, chorus is just magnificent, you know, and great vocal. God, what a good vocal by, by Ozzy and, you know, really good breakdowns, great verses, you know, great guitar work. I think it was smart for them to put it last and, and wrap up osmosis with it. And um, I think it's uh, a magnificent song to uh, wrap up tonight's album, certainly. And uh, one that I think is certainly top tier for me as far as specialness. You got to give a shout out to John Purdell, who's a, um, a, a songwriter and musician that we lost just way too soon. He had a very tragic death in his forties and he's the co-writer of this song and a few other ones on the album. And I think he was a lyrics guy, but you know, lyrics are a key part of this song. And he worked with a lot of bands, dream theater and foreigner heart Cinderella. So he's one of these guys that worked with a lot of these kind of eighties and early nineties bands. And, you know, obviously his, uh, his contribution to this album is big and his contribution to this song is really significant. Yeah. There's a, there's a romantic nature to this song and it's not a, Oh, babe, I miss you type thing, but it's a, there's a lot of imagery, certainly with the lyrics. Um, I really think it's a song that produces, you know, very, a very special level of emotion uh, in a very heavy way. I mean, it's a, it's a heavy song, you know, but one that uh, wraps up this album perfectly. Well, that, that's a top 20 song for you. Interestingly enough, there's an all time top 20 song for me. That's my favorite song on osmosis that wasn't on osmosis. And it needs to be talked about just because of its place in Ozzy's catalog. And like I said, it's truly one of my favorite songs of all time. And that is back on earth, yeah. which made uh, the, I believe it's called the ultimate collection or something like that. And it's from the osmosis sessions. It somehow didn't make the album. Although I, I think I know why. I mean, it, it clearly, why? I, I've always wondered why, why do, why do you think it didn't? I think it's it was, an, a, it's incredible. It's an incredible song. And I think it's purely a business decision mm. because the song is good enough to be the lead single on a compilation, which it was so that they were able to release it to radio and have back on earth drive the sales for ultimate collection, which I mean, I bought that compilation purely for back on earth. You know, I didn't need no. I, like an Aussie compilation was fine. But I think it was so good. I think it was such an impressive song to hear on the radio Yeah, that they knew that it would drive sales and putting it on Osmosis, an album that already clearly had tr pretty tremendous amount of depth to it. I don't even know where you would sequence it. You know what I mean? Um, that song has a, an absurdly good pre-chorus. I mean, yeah, geez, that thing that kind of walks up. Yeah, back on Earth, back on Earth's a great tune, and the fact that you know that happened during these sessions showed you the kind of juice they had. Um, yeah, whether they were in Paris or New York, uh, there was something magical going on up there during these sessions. Certainly, exactly, it resembles just kind of being on fire, you know. And when that's the outtake 
from these sessions, you know, you know, you've nailed it. And Ozzy and team certainly nailed it. I don't know what you're talking about. I have songs like that on the shelf, you know. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just, just yeah. sitting on a back on earth. Yeah, exactly. yeah, sure. So, T, that is osmosis. Let's get into the kind of summation of our work here this fine evening. Does osmosis matter? I don't know if it matters in of itself. I do think that if you were to link together No More Tears and osmosis, you've probably got something there that was fairly important from the standpoint of thickness and layering on top of this type of genre. I mean, I do think it's a very uniquely produced album and Beinhorn had a track record of that. I mean, look what he did with hole, you know, look what he did taking them from live through this into celebrity skin, totally different band. Now, granted they had some songwriting help, right? But that's half the battle, you know? So, so I think it was just a, a good marriage uh, of a lot of different things that not only happened w- with osmosis, but, but also happened with no more tears. So I think if it's a, you know, if it's a package deal, you've probably got something that kind of matters in a very unique sound and approach from, you know, a rock and roll icon, you know, but in of itself, I'm not sure that it's going to be an album that gets pointed to as one with you know tremendous importance but this era this early mid 90s era for ozzy was really important this was around the time that Ozfest started and there's a lot of appeal on these two records commercially where a lot of these songs could appear in a variety of different formats whereas some of his other work you're pretty much going to hear on classic rock type radio. So at the time, I think it was important stuff for Ozzy. And I'm not sure if I deem osmosis necessarily important in the grand scheme, but how about you? You know, it went double platinum, which actually was a little surprising to me. I would have pegged this as a gold album, you know, maybe single platinum, maybe, but it went double platinum. It sold, you know, almost 3 million copies over time. It had commercial success. Well, and even moms liked it. I mean, certainly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you know, it, it's not like it's void of commercial success or overlooked. The, the area where I do think it matters is it's, I think it's kind of a uniting album to certain tastes. No More Tears, much more kind of mainstream out in front. Osmosis is a little bit more that dirty little secret that if somebody really knows it top to bottom and cherishes it, that says a lot about their taste. It says a lot about their knowledge of Ozzy. So I think it matters in the sense that it's kind of a uniting album for those with you know, kind of a higher range of musical knowledge, but commercial wise. And that's why we kind of began with this idea of, you know, will Ozzy last into future generations? I don't think he will. I think Ozzy will stop kind of right with us and maybe a generation lower than us. I just don't think that new fans in the future would understand, you know, why he's so significant. So I don't think it has any lasting power into the future, but I think those of us that grew up with it, that still have a deep appreciation for it. I think it says a lot about one's taste and and one's passion for rock music. If they, if they were one who had this album and one who understood it. All right, T let's do our final analysis. Also known as the final cut. Are you ready for this? The final cut. Let's do it. Is osmosis on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or is it in the for sale bin? For me, it's collecting dust, Nubs. It's, um, 
I think if it was a double album with No More Tears, or maybe you take the five best songs off No More Tears and the five best songs off Osmosis, you got one on the turntable, 100%. You know, but I really enjoyed plowing through it for this episode. I'm not sure that once this episode's done, it's the type of album that I'm going to, you know, listen to top to bottom regularly. Now, Old LA Tonight is a, you know, top 25 song of all time for me. I think there are real high points on this album, and I think it was a tremendous effort. Ozzy has a really good catalog. I was able to get that, you know, LP box set, you know, that came out a few months ago with all the albums in colored vinyl. I mean, it's a beautiful set. And you're and still if, trying to figure out the mortgage on your house that you had to redo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, Osmosis was probably the fifth album that I picked to listen to, you know, and it's, it's kind of an interesting when you get a box set like that, what order you go in. So it's up there. It's fantastic. I think the production is just wonderful. I mean, I think it is a really, really well produced, well composed record. But, you know, I'm going to go, it's it's probably a heavy collecting dust plus type of a thing. I don't want to downgrade it, but probably not one that I will feel the need to go top to bottom on too often. But if there's a handful of tracks that I want to make sure are regularly placed into, you know, certain playlists or certain rotations um, that I listen to regularly, that's certainly the case. So I'm going to go collecting dust. What are you going to go on this one, Nubs? I'm, I'm very interested. I'm going on the turntable because the album tracks have become staples for me, Mm. you know, and if you just look down the line, I mean, you know, aside from denial, these are all songs that I need to hear regularly. And I'm talking about tomorrow. I'm talking about, I just want you, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my little man, like these are regular spins for me, which it makes an album that's so complete. I mean, this album is top to bottom spectacular again you got the one low point but it's wrapped around you know two amazing songs you can kind of deal with it so i think it's so clearly ozzy's best album it's one of my favorite albums of all time and it's it's a regular spin on the turntable for me top to bottom that's a good call i mean that is certainly a fair call it certainly makes sense that you'd put this one on the turntable let's make even more sense when we close up shop officially here and check in with old Dolores with a little what is in your head. Oh, Dolores. <laughs> See, what are three tracks that are uh, suiting your fancy right Sorry, now? Sorry, I'm just, just cracking myself up over You're here. You're having a great time over um, Incubus, uh, the song is Dig, which was, you know, one of their sort of, uh, I guess, later hits if you will dig has always to me been a a really brilliant song i mean it's a it's a gorgeous tune and and i think it's kind of incubus had a lot of good songs you know i'm I'm a fan um i think they petered out a little bit you know in the back half of their recording career or maybe they're still together i don't know but i think they really peaked on this one with some really creative guitar work and a vocal by uh brandon boyd that's just outstanding so their last like four or five albums have all been uh, unlistenably bad. Yeah. Which yeah, is they, amazing because their first four were, you know, were like awesome. Yeah, you're right. I, it's one of those bands. You're kind of like, just what happened to them? You know, 
The second song is, uh, it's actually one that the first time I heard it was at a rather obscure concert with you. The band is called Roachford. You know where I'm going with this? I do. So where did we hear this song? What show? Well, <laughs> I thought you said you knew where I was going with this. I want to I help do. You out. I'm trying to think of it. Give me a so, hint. Was- so this is uh, Mike Rutherford's uh, band. So Mike Rutherford had Mike and the Mechanics. Yeah. And then he also played guitar with this other side project called Roachford. Uh, we actually went and saw Mike and the Mechanics in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Very rare. Us and um, five other people. I think they only did a handful of shows in the state. And one of them just for some reason was at the Michigan theater in Ann Arbor. So, and we went and the, one of the singers that he still tours with, cause obviously Mike and the mechanics had, I think it was Paul Carrick, right. On vocals. And, you know, Mike Rutherford's never been a singer per se. So he was actually touring with the lead singer of Roachford and they played their song, which was a pretty big hit in the UK called cuddly toy. And uh, the reason why this is in my head is I was uh, watching a soccer documentary, football, I suppose it is. It was about Arsenal versus Liverpool. It's this really cool documentary on Netflix. And uh, they keep playing songs from that year that were very popular uh, in England. And they played Cuddly Toy. And I was like, oh, man, I remember that song. That's that song that they played at the Mike and the Mechanics show, even though it wasn't Mike and the Mechanics, you know, it was a whole thing you had to sort of piece together. But anyway, Cuddly Toy, it's a, it's a great jam. You know, it's kind of an early nineties, uh, you know, pop rock tune, but it, it's, uh, it's very good. And the singer is Andrew Roachford. There you go. There you go. And uh, you're right. That, that was, that was a great show. It was, I mean, it was like maybe a 10th full, but uh, they sounded amazing. It was a great night. It was fun. It was a very unique concert experience and you're right there probably weren't enough people there and then uh the third one for me is uh is one from a movie from the 80s about vampires which featured edgar and alan the frog brothers ah yep. the lost so boys. A, a lost boys you got it and uh uh featuring the Corys, of course and then uh, a young Kiefer sutherland you know great film but uh the 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 movie also features a guy named tim capello and uh this was at a time in the 80s where a big you know big, strong, beefy, you know, oiled up saxophone player with a ponytail was like kind of cool. Now you'd probably call the police or something, but you know, at that time it was cool, you know, (laughs) and uh, there's this scene where they uh, go to a, you know, party or a bonfire or something. And, and there's a band playing, you know, because of course they're in Santa Carla, which is just the coolest town ever, apparently, because they just have bands that play in like open fields you know yeah yeah and uh and uh tim capello this big guy's all greased up and he's playing a saxophone and he's singing a cover by a band called the call which is called i still believe you know and uh the call a very underrated group that had some really good songs tim capello this sax player guy did a pretty sweet cover of this in the lost boys and it's featured in the movie and it's a, a track that, uh, you know, it's one of those that you put on, you're with a group of buddies and everyone's kind of like, I know this, what do I know this from? You know, the sax. I mean, I, I, where's it? and then you say lost boys and like, Oh, of course, you know, how, how did I not, you know, put that together? So anyway, I still believe by Tim Capello. So how's that for, uh, in your head, what's in your head, buddy. <laughs> those are some, those are some mighty fine selections there, T. I got to say, I'm, I'm going to go right after we're done recording here and listen to a little Tim Capello. 
Well, first you got to do two live crew live in concert. Oh then, yeah, of course. Then go Tim Capelli. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're <laughs> kind of the king of themes when it comes to these little lists that we do. So let's see if you can spot the theme that I have for mine. The first one is uh, the song attack by system of a down, which is the opening track on one of the two like, pair of albums. They did the mesmerize and hypnotize records from now several years back. And Attack is a, it's just a killer opening track. Secondly, would be a POD with the song Alive off of the incredibly popular album Satellite. I think that was like, you know, 2002-ish, right around that area. And uh, POD always brought it really well live. And that album is, is sort of a classic. I mean, it was packed with hits and maybe one of the last big commercial albums of kind of the early 2000s rock. And lastly would be a typo negative, uh, black number one, the live version of it, even though I love the studio version too, but that song took on a life live that, uh, that was always pretty mind blowing. And certainly one of the high points of, a of a typo show, which you and I were just so incredibly lucky to see as many typo shows as we did. So, so it's, it's, I don't know, spot the theme system of a down POD typo negative. What? What might they all have in common? And I'll tell you, you referenced it earlier. I mean, my first thought was metal songs slash bands that have two singers. Oh, no, but you're very close, actually. Mm. That, that's a, I mean, I, I like the common theme of metal. I'm not sure if POD has POD does not have two singers. They have one. Yeah. But, well, then but, I give up. What is it? Those are all three bands that I saw headline OzFest. Oh, ah, okay. Close up, close up uh, tonight's episode and put a little full circle bow on this thing. Very nice. Those are three bands that I saw put on, you know, fabulous sets at respective Ozfests. T, it was fun diving into Osmosis with you. Are you going to run out and make a mixtape? Is that is that is that kind of the theme of today? Is that time to get back into the mixtape business? I, I think my I think I'm retired from mixtapes. But uh, listen, if there are any youngsters out there looking to close a deal. Give old Uncle Tofa a call. I'll give you some good advice, all right? <laughs> I have a feeling that if you made Mrs. Tofa mixtape and handed it to her, I think she'd like just throw it at you. Yeah, you know, unless it had Broadway on it, she probably wouldn't, you know. <laughs> I think she pretended to like my stuff back in our 20s, but now she'd probably just be like, this sucks. When she was trying to score her prize, also known as Tof, you know. That's right. That's right. What a what, prize it is. And what a prize you are. What a yeah, prize you are. No question. Well, hopefully episode 20 is a prize for all of you. Make sure and like us, subscribe to us, stay engaged with us. Send us some requests too. We've already been able to fulfill a couple of requests to here on, here on uh, Two Twins in an Album. And we're always looking for new ideas of albums to do. So please send us something and I guarantee we'll find a way to do it. And until episode 21, we wish all of you the very best. And you know what? Go grab Osmosis and listen to it top to bottom. It'll make you smile. And we will see you for episode 21 right here on Two Twins and an album. See ya. That's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. 
We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.